according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. You may join me in Matthew chapter 22. We will read through the Matthew account, and then we'll turn to Mark 12. And I believe we'll spend the bulk of our time at Mark 12. Today we're introducing episode 8 in Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. Episode 8. I do have some uh, some harmonies available for the final week. There's a lot that goes on on this week. And does everybody have a, a harmony or need a harmony? I know we published the overall harmony years ago, but this is good to have just for the final week. This is good to have just for the final week. The, you got one there? Okay. Because there's so much that happens between the triumphal entry on Palm Monday and uh, the cross on Good Friday. Uh-huh. And you typically lose them, so you can get four or five and stash them in different places around the around the house. Right? Oh, to be here during the Easter season and the right. Yeah, it is interesting. Well, episode eight, Pharisees question commandments. This follows episode seven, where the Sadducees were questioning the resurrection, and so uh, we went through. We spent a couple of weeks dealing with the Sadducees and their really the ridiculous story that they made up about a woman that was widowed and then widowed again and widowed seven different times, married all these brothers and different things where they were trying to uh, dispute the resurrection. And this really prompted some uh, uh, Pharisees then to go ahead and try to score some points since the Lord had humiliated the Sadducees so much. And so that's what we see here in Matthew 22. Um, In verse 34 it says, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. In other words, they decided to assemble the largest group of Pharisees that has yet to this point confronted Jesus with any kind of of issue. Uh, But they're motivated by the silencing of the Sadducees. And so it's kind of an interesting insight into the dynamic at work there between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I think it's an interesting observation in the darkened mind that's carnal to begin with and enjoys seeing your opponents um, humiliated as it were. And uh, so now they're viewing this as really the opportunity they have to, uh, to gain some points and to, and to improve their own circumstance. We've seen this before um, in the uh, marriage debate and other uh, divorce debate and other questions where different competing political parties tried to get Jesus on record uh, to either choose their side or choose their opponent's side. And then based on whichever side he chose, they, uh, they would have their plan of attack afterwards. And it was all politics and it was all carnal mindedness and uh so it's kind of interesting that here again once again we see a uh, a similar situation all right well before we begin let's take a moment for silent prayer making sure that distractions are set aside that we have humility to receive the word implanted shall we pray
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and once again, it's our privilege and blessing. We thank you that you've made Wednesday mornings available for us to come together and to participate in this class. Uh, more than 300 sessions now in Life of Christ, Father, and it's just a uh, tremendous study, and we thank you for it. And the more we learn about our Savior, the more we see um, how he spoke and how he taught and how he ministered. Father, is just a wonderful example for us to learn from. So uh, once again today we are asking for distractions to be set aside and asking, Father, that you would guide us in the truth. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. One last detail as I check the noise capacity of my telephone. Here we go. Sunday night, uh, Glenn was teaching and his phone rang and I I just thinking, okay, it's going to happen to me someday, but not not this day. All right. My phone has gone into a silent mode, whatever that means. Now, um, so when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. This is a very deliberate gathering of a significant number of the Pharisee party here in Jerusalem. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Uh, technically, we would say tempting him. When you distinguish between perazzo and dokimazzo, this is the perazzo testing. This is the satanic testing. Satan is the tempter. He is the uh, perazzon when you give it the, the uh, participial form here. And so this is not a test for approval that we understand in, that God does when he examines us and tests us for our approval. This is the tempting for our downfall. And uh, this is Satan's activity, and this is what the lawyer here is doing. The lawyer, you understand, is an expert in Mosaic law. And so he says to him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? The great, that is the greatest, the one and only. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's a quotation out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll spend some time there this morning as well. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And so it's a foundation for the Old Testament. Law and prophets is an idiom that expresses the Old Testament, Matthew to Mal or Genesis to Malachi. All right, pretty short, pretty straightforward. We get a little bit more detail in Mark, Mark chapter 12. where we will spend, I expect, the bulk of our time. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Mark 12, 28 says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? So we'll discuss the slight differences in the, in the details. Uh, Pharisees are not mentioned here. Uh, a lawyer is not mentioned. A scribe is mentioned. Uh, of course, a Pharisee can be both a lawyer and a scribe. Um, lawyers and scribes are uh, sometimes interchangeable, can, can relate to. Uh, a scribe does not necessarily have to be expert in the law, may not be a teacher of the law, uh, but is one who is simply trained in writing, trained in copying manuscripts, and so forth. Now it helps if the copyist uh, has a, 
uh, a theological background to understand what he's copying and, and could also be very well trained in the law. Uh, you could also have someone trained in the law that's terrible at, at that'd be me. <laughs> no one would want me for a scribe uh, because the, I'd finish copying a manuscript and the one I produced would be so unreadable. They'd say, why, why did we bother copying this scroll? So it's possible you could have a lawyer, an expert in law, Mosaic law, a Bible expert who's not a scribe, and you can have a scribe who's not a Bible expert, or you could have both. And uh, we'll discuss that when we when I harmonize the two accounts here. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these and the scribe said to him right teacher you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices when jesus saw that he had answered intelligently he said to him you are not far from the kingdom of god after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. All right, so a lot more detail here in the Mark account. Now, there's one more passage. It is not truly a parallel, but it is so similar, we need to examine it. And that comes in Luke chapter 10. So uh, let's turn over there briefly, Luke chapter 10. It's not listed on the screen, and it's not a parallel text to episode 8, but... The content is largely similar, and mainly the reference to the greatest commandment. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 27. Again, it's a lawyer in view. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So there are similar components. It's a lawyer, and he's tempting him. Perazzo, temptation. And course that's this violates the scripture we're not to put the lord our god to the test do you understand that but teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life and so jesus said to him well what is written in the law how does it read to you and he answered you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself and so jesus said to him you've answered correctly do this and you will live and uh <laughs> I think he didn't like the answer he received, uh, so wishing to justify himself, he then said to Jesus, okay, well, who's my neighbor? And this introduces the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan and all the doctrine associated with that. So this actually was earlier, much earlier in the, and I'll give you the, the breakdown on this in the points of study. Uh, it was an earlier episode. It was not in the final week at Jerusalem. It was during the last Judean and Perean ministry. Um, it does use the combination of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus, uh, and so it's, it's largely similar uh, to the content we have in our episode today. And so we'll have to explore perhaps the possibility that this was a, a sermon that Jesus had taught quite often. Uh, the blending of, of, of uh, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus is not intuitive, so maybe it's something that Christ had done that the lawyer picked up on. We'll talk about some of the details here as we go through it. But I, just, I want you to be aware of Luke 10 as a third passage that, uh, while not parallel, 
is one that clearly is, is comparative and we have to include it as we study Mark 12. So let's return to Mark 12 now and, and begin to get our points of study as far as what we're looking at here. First of all, the humiliation of the Sadducees emboldened the Pharisees to form their largest group yet for an encounter with Jesus. The humiliation of the Sadducees emboldened the Pharisees to form their largest group yet for an encounter with Jesus. And we looked at that as uh, described in Matthew 22:34, that they had uh, observed that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. Um, some of the Pharisee dynamics are interesting to consider. Uh, the reluctance to come in large groups, um, the, even to the point of coming by night, you know, singly, like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, comes all by himself, he comes at night. Um, because so much of what the Pharisees live for is their public image and how things are seen and how things are perceived and how people think of them. And I imagine there's uh, even issues related to, well, even coming to Jesus and asking him questions could be perceived as being uh, bad, uh, undesirable, a compromise uh, in the eyes of other Pharisees, you understand. Because he wasn't one of them. He, he didn't go to their schools. He was neither uh, the school of Shammai or the school of Hillel. He was not, uh, they called him rabbi as a courtesy, but he was not uh, credentialed as far as they were concerned. And so to, uh, to even spend time with him, I think Simon was taking a great risk, having him into his home, you understand. Because he was, he was not one of them. And to be a Pharisee meant you were set apart from the, the, the little people. <laughs> okay? They were the, uh, the intellectuals. They were the, uh, the elite of their day. And every Jew had that attitude that they were set apart better than the Gentiles, right? Well, the Pharisees had that attitude in spades. They had it multiplied because... As I said, Jews were superior. They were set apart from Gentiles as God's chosen people. But um, Pharisees were even set apart from regular Jews. Okay? They were one further step set apart. That's what Pharisee even means, the set apart one. So um, it, it is interesting that they do form this large group. And, and I guess we could explore that a little bit. But that's uh, just simply an observation I make out of that particular verse. Now, I believe we have two characters in this episode. I think that the lawyer in Matthew is is best thought of as somebody different than the scribe in Mark. One of this group was a lawyer. One of this group was a lawyer who uh, viewed the group's question as a temptation. One of this group was a lawyer who, there should be a who in there, viewed the group's question as a temptation. the edit to my notes so I can repair that. One of this group was a lawyer who viewed the group's question as a temptation. All right? Now you've got a group of people, a large group of Pharisees, and so they ask this question. It is technically, it is the group's question. It may be one person speaks it, but it's a question that belongs to the entire group. And there could be different attitudes from the people in the group, even though it's the same question that's asked, you understand. And so we see the term peirazzo here in Matthew 22:35. It's the same term we had for the lawyer in, uh, in the Luke account. They came tempting. 
The perazzo is always designed for the downfall, is designed for the snare to trip up the person being tempted. That's why God himself cannot be tempted and God himself does not tempt anyone. But Satan is the tempter and the tempting activity is the to be expected uh, from our main adversaries, the world, the flesh, and the devil. All three are uh, very skilled at tempting us. I believe another of this group was a scribe. And he wasn't there to tempt He actually wanted that question answered because he identified the Lord as one who answered well. One who answered well. And I believe the detail, the contrast between Matthew 22, 35 on the one hand and Mark 12, 28 on the other hand is such that it is better to think of these as two separate individuals. So the lawyer's motivation was temptation. The... uh, Uh, scribe's motivation was uh, having identified the Lord as one who had answered well. Again, we look at Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. Now, it's not clear who the them arguing was at that point. Uh, Is is the them arguing the large group of Pharisees? Uh, Was the them arguing the group of Sadducees that were put to shame by Jesus? Or both? Uh, I I think... In the Mark context, it's better that them goes back to Sadducees Um, in any event. But he recognizing that he had answered them well, he had answered them well. Okay, that's significant. Uh, This shows positive volition. This shows that he is actually responding to what Jesus is saying in terms of content. Okay, answering well means accurately, biblically, doctrinally. Okay, not that he's somehow you know, slick and reads a teleprompter and <laughs> has a has a uh, kind of a charisma about him. Because some people can be very eloquent and it's not fair to say that they're answering well because their content is flawed. Their, their answers are wrong. They're unbiblical. They're uh, terrible. You would say those are terrible answers. Uh, so, yeah, the answering well does not speak of his homiletics. It speaks of his hermeneutics. It speaks of his... Uh, doctrine speaks of his theology and so recognizing knowing uh, with a certainty that jesus had answered the sadducees well asked him what commandment is the foremost of all so he's asking the question with a desire for information he wants to grow he wants to learn he wants to live the word of god okay we've discussed as well the difference between questions uh, those that are legitimate in terms of true positive volition, and those that are illegitimate because they are simply the venue in which uh, a hostile opponent is trying to trap you in some kind of silly thing. Okay? Uh, and the nature of, of hostile questions from illegitimate questioners, I feel, as I've said this before, my conviction is that I'm not obligated to play their game. I'm not obligated to answer those questions if I am convicted that it's an illegitimate question to begin with, that they're simply tempters, they're hostile, they're, uh, they're not there truly seeking, all right, and uh, different things there. I believe that that's pearls before swine and not casting what is holy to the dogs, uh, that uh, I have to be obedient to those scriptures and I have to be discerning between uh, legitimate questions and illegitimate questions. Don't get me wrong. If it's a legitimate question, then I'm obligated. I've got to be ready to give an account to any who would ask. Any. <laughs> Whether I like them or not. I've got to give them an account. 
to any who might ask for the hope that is in me. Yet with gentleness and reverence, I still have to have the fear of the Lord. I have to have the right perspective. And if, if it becomes clear that they're not truly seeking, they're just asking their questions as a part of a, a debate, well, where is the debater of this age? Okay. So it's probably best if we consider these as two separate individuals. Now, point two then. In a previous episode, which is last Judean and Prean ministry episode eight, is that right? Huh. They're both eights. That's interesting. I'll double check that. I, sometimes the coincidence is too much. <laughs> um, but in a previous episode... Back during the last Judean and Perean ministry, uh, it was after the Galilean ministry, but before the final uh, Palm Monday entrance into Jerusalem, a lawyer provided this twofold answer. It was not Jesus giving the answer, it was the lawyer providing this answer. Okay? And it's very unique. Like I say, it's a combination of, of Deuteronomy 6 and, and, and Leviticus 12. Okay? And it's, uh, I'm sorry, Leviticus 19:18. It is, a, it is a, a unique combination of Bible verses that um, you might not expect to find linked together the way that this lawyer links them together in Luke 10. So a lawyer provided this twofold answer. So the Lord's citation here makes it very interesting. Again, we point out in Luke 10, this, this lawyer was convinced that uh, he could work his way to heaven. What good thing might, might I do that I might have eternal life? How can I work my way to, to glory? And so Jesus answers a question with a question and says, well, what do you think? <laughs> what does the scripture read to you? And so then the lawyer presents his synthesis. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He creates a blended reading of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Luke 19, or Leviticus 19.18. But here we see, again, a lawyer in Matthew and a scribe in Mark. Here we see they're asking Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers with the same scripture blend. He answers with the same two commandments. In other words, loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor. And he combines them the same way that lawyer did in, in Luke. And he gives it to them as the, as the summer, the foundation of the law. And so I find this interesting. Um, we have to ask questions that cannot be answered with the confidence. So subpoint A, is this the same lawyer in both episodes? There's no way to know. He doesn't say that it was the lawyer who came to him previously, but we wouldn't expect that since Matthew did not record that earlier uh, conflict with that lawyer. Okay? The, the episode with the lawyer that led into the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that was unique to Luke. That was not an episode taught by Matthew, so it's not. Uh, we wouldn't expect that Matthew would say here, "Oh, this is the same lawyer who appeared to him previously." Okay, um, is it the same lawyer in both episodes? It very possibly could be. Um, we're also left wondering how often did Jesus teach this message? How often did he teach this message? Uh, we've seen countless times in previous episodes that there was similarities from things he taught in the Galilean ministry to things he taught in the Prean ministry, things he taught even going way back to the first Judean ministry, the early Judean ministry with, uh, that was contemporaneous with John the Baptist. There were things that he taught repeatedly at different stages. And as he taught them over and over again, sometimes the wording would be slightly different. 
Okay? That's not a problem. It's not a contradiction in the Bible. It's not a, a failure in the text. In fact, this is one of the, the passages that we have a lot of puzzles with because of the wording. Is it heart, soul, and strength? Is it heart, soul, and mind? Is it heart, soul, mind, and strength? Is it heart, soul, strength, and mind? All right? And we have distinctions between, that is, variances between the original text in Deuteronomy and how it's quoted in Matthew, how it's quoted in Mark, and how it's quoted in Luke. See? And so you would expect, though, if it's, a, if it's a class that he teaches over and over again or a message that he gives in different uh, contexts to different audiences, then he might vary the, the terms. He might change the order. He might add a term. See? And so... Um, we need to be a little bit relaxed about certain things. But how often did Jesus teach this message? And when the lawyer in Luke blended Deuteronomy 6.5 with Leviticus 19.18, was he doing that in his own, as his own study, as his own doctrinal understanding, his own synthesis? Or was he at that time actually quoting a prior teaching that Jesus had given? I never considered that when we taught the parable of the Good Samaritan. That when the lawyer came to him and, and gave his, you shall love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself, when he gave that blend, it never crossed my mind that maybe that was something he had heard Jesus previously teaching. So he was simply copying back uh, something he had heard Jesus say previously. And uh, now going back and looking at the uh, Good Samaritan parable and looking at the things leading up to that, it, it really has me wondering. Because the blend of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 is not as a, a natural blend. You wouldn't immediately jump there necessarily. So um, so there we have it. And and by the way, this is this is, I'm not saying he's wrong for blending those verses. We do it all the time. We ought to do this. This is part of being noble-minded. This is part of comparing Scripture with Scripture. Okay, and so the way that you connect passages then requires that you have to have a maturity. You have to have a, a, a doctrinal um, uh, familiarity with the whole breadth of Scripture, because if, if you're if you're if you're not grounded in the Word of God, if you're just grabbing a verse here and a verse here and another verse over here and just kind of piecing them together artificially, uh, a lot of times that's a fraudulent approach for somebody that's just trying to create a. Uh, a <laughs> justification for something phony that they're doing right and so they're picking and choosing we call that cherry picking they're picking and choosing little verses here and there to kind of build their case for their approach and it's not a legitimate you got you got to have legitimate hermeneutical grounds to link the passages together the way that you do and i think obviously there is legitimate grounds for blending deuteronomy 6 5 and leviticus 19 18 uh, and the lord obviously does it here in this episode today where he's giving the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. Um, so uh, I just think it's an interesting question as to how the lawyer in Luke, who was a tempter, how he put those verses together. Did he do that in his own study? Or had he heard the Lord previously teach that? As I say, these are really unanswerable because um, we don't have the, the text doesn't tell us. All right. Let's look at, first of all, the Jewish background here. Jewish background for this question. Um, even the temptation itself. What is the, the greatest commandment? Okay, as if 
There's one commandment that's more powerful than all the others. And if you keep that one, then you've kept them all. Is that possible? Is there one that can kind of summarize everything? Is it possible? And why would you think such a thing? Well, here's your background. Subpoint A. The scribes had identified 613 separate commandments, and we still track that today. It's still recognized as being the, the accepted number in the uh, Talmud that uh, Mosaic Law has 613 commandments, not just the Ten Commandments of the Decalogue, but 613 total between their civil code, their legal code, their religious code. Uh, 365 of them are negative. Thou shalt not. <laughs> don't do this. Don't do this. And 248, which are positive. For a total of 613 separate commandments. And, uh, of course, if you break one, you've broken them all. However, um, some are more breakable than others. Uh, some are... Um, now, what should we say? Point B. They divided them further into heavy and light. They classified the weightier elements of the law. Heavier. Something is heavy. Something is weighty. Um, this is a, a facet of culture that is a little bit lost to us uh, because we associate weight with um, unattractiveness. Somebody who's overweight or uh, is not healthy. In, uh, but in the ancient world... <laughs> Weight was a thing of, uh, of, of glory. It was, it was a sign of importance. Uh, if you were heavy, you uh, obviously had the wealth to eat better than <laughs> average folks. And you, uh, you weren't out there laboring in the field because you were a king or you were a powerful lord. And you had, there were other people who did your work for you kind of a thing. And so the, um, the, uh, the weightier and in the Hebrew word kavod and kaved and the adjective for glory is the same as the adjective for weighty, heavy. Different aspects there. So they have heavy and light. Uh, the Lord even rebuked the Pharisees for some of their uh, classifications because he said you are neglecting the weightier things of the law by all of their fastidious uh, attention to tithing uh, their, their spice racks right? Tithing their mint and dill and cumin and, and they'd, they'd come home with, with uh, you know, some paprika from H-E-B and they would make sure that 10% of that uh, was poured out before they put it in their cupboard because that was their tithe that would go to the, go to the temple, you know. You can imagine such ludicrous, but that, that's how they proved how, what great law keepers they were, Right? So they divided them further into heavy and light. It is interesting. I don't know if this is actually the basis for it or not, but Roman Catholicism likewise uh, has a distinction in their sins uh, between mortal sins and venal sins. Uh, if you're familiar with that, if you've got Catholic background or, or friends and so forth, and the, 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 the more serious sins require the, the, the larger number of Hail Marys and penance and, and, uh, and you know, money, guilt money for different things the the, the less uh, tragic sins you know the penance is not nearly so high and, and your time in purgatory is not nearly so long um, again that says it's a sad approach because scripture says sin is sin oh yeah they do that now absolutely they do that now. so uh, the idea of heavy commandments and light commandments more important or less important 
Um, you know, God is the sovereign God of the universe, and we're to love the Lord your God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the idea that, well, we can be sloppy in these areas because it's not as heavy is uh, a bit of a, uh, of a fallacy. Now, it came to be a practice. The rabbis often attempted to sum up the whole law in a single unifying command. And I'm not sure where it started. I, I found, when I thought I had found the earliest use and then I found another earlier use, and so it's hard to say when it started as a practice. Probably in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, I don't think as, yeah, it must have been after Ezra, but before the before the New Testament. But um, the idea that let's just try to come up with a single unifying command. Obey this command. And then you're automatically kind of obeying everything else because this is an overall kind of a default kind of a single unifying command. And that's rather uh, interesting. That's in, in part, that's what they were doing when they were building their fence. Uh, in, uh, in Jewish thought, um, they were they built a fence and the, the idea was if they made the law more restrictive, if, uh, if they had made it harder to disobey, then they could never disobey. And that's their, their philosophy. So if, if Mosaic law, am I explaining this well? There's a, think of law as a fence. Thou shalt not steal. Okay? Thou shalt not break the Sabbath, whatever. This is, this is the law, and so this is the fence. And if you cross the fence, you've, you've uh, broken the law. Okay? So if you steal something, if you break the Sabbath. To me, that's simple. But they thought, well, let's, let's take it a step further. Let's build a fence further out. Okay, so, for example, if you've got a fence between your house and your neighbor's house, uh, if you built a second fence three feet beyond your fence, okay, um, then, and you build it higher than your fence, then what have you done? Okay, well, you've made it harder for your neighbor to cross into your yard. Because in order to cross your fence, he first of all has to cross that other fence, the one that's further out and higher. Okay. Never mind the fact that it's actually in his yard and you've just denied him with some of the liberty and freedom that he can't enjoy the, the, three, the final three feet of his property line because you put another fence in there, right? But the point being is that if you keep him from crossing that higher fence, that further fence, then he won't even, it's, it's unthinkable that he'll actually cross your fence and he'll never get into your yard, see? So that's what they did with the law. That's what they did with the law. They said, let's make the law harder. And so they built their fence out there. And so um, they, they got more and more restrictive about, well, what is a Sabbath day's journey? And they started making it shorter and shorter and shorter so that the further they moved that fence out, the less chance they had that they would actually cross God's fence. And other aspects. Okay. And so the idea of trying to create a, a single unifying command, one law, one overall command, and if we obey this, then we've obeyed all 613. All right? And so perhaps it, you know, became a philosophical exercise or perhaps who knows. See, uh, maybe it was just simply a guilt exercise. Someone could convince themselves, hey, I kept this big law, so I'm good because maybe there were four or five of the 613 that he kind of struggled with. So let's just create one where we can handle it and say, all right, there we go. Well, 
you understand the, 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 the folly of all this? Because um, no one could keep all 613 except for Jesus. Okay? But even if it was one command, no one could keep that either. Look, Adam and Eve had one command, right? Isn't that the whole point of the fall? They had one command and they blew it. And so now humanity is in this lost estate. And, and so the idea of trying to boil down 613 into one is, uh, is really a fruitless exercise anyway. Let me give you one example, Hillel. According to Hillel, it's kind of interesting. The stories on this are funny because a Gentile had come to Hillel and had a question for him. And I'm shocked that Hillel would even speak to a Gentile, but he did. Um, and the Gentile's question was, uh, explain to me the law while I'm standing on one foot. <laughs> okay, so how long can you stand on one foot? The idea being that, not long, yeah, that, that give, me, give me a short version of, of the law, right? Give me, uh, I don't have time to listen to all 613 commandments. I don't have time to learn the Pentateuch. Just, I'm going to stand on one foot. You teach me the law, right? It's kind of like we say today, put it on a bumper sticker, okay? Put it on a bumper sticker. Put it on Twitter. You got to get it in, how many characters? You get 162 characters? 140 characters on Twitter. All right, so if you can't tweet it in 140 characters, your message is too long. Boil it down, boil it down, okay? All right. So according to Hillel, here's how he did it. He said, what, it, what is hateful to you, do not to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. <laughs> it's almost like the golden rule. In fact, it's sometimes thought of as a prototype golden rule. But what is hateful to you, do not to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, while the rest is commentary. <laughs> that was Hillel. Hillel, um, probably the greatest of the zugot pairings of the of that era of, of judaism uh he was the grandfather of gamaliel uh there were two gamaliels but he was the grandfather of gamaliel the first uh the gamaliel the elder gamaliel that paul sat at the feet of gamaliel okay gamaliel was the greatest sage of his day but he was a student of the grandson of and student of hillel and hillel was truly the uh the greatest of the of the rabbis of that era all right, so part of, the, part of the background there. But the idea that, okay, let's just boil it all down into one. Can we summarize the entire... And perhaps today we might say the same thing. If, if we're going to summarize the entire Christian way of life, I think you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is not a bad way to do it. All right, because if you truly understand all the, the, the doctrine implicit with agape love, then loving the Lord your God is is uh, not a bad way to summarize the Christian way of life and loving your neighbor as yourself. So I, I, I approve Jesus' message here in this chapter. Let me just say that. Okay. All right. Point four. Jesus has asked for the greatest commandment and he answers with the greatest and second greatest. Which, again, sparks the thought. Is he simply taking from what a previous encounter, is he, has he himself learned from that first lawyer? Did he adapt what that first lawyer gave him in, in terms of, of the, the Deuteronomy-Leviticus blend? Did he, uh, did he adopt that himself in his own frame of reference and start teaching it? Or was he actually the first one to teach that and the lawyer in Luke uh, was, was responding to him? We, had, we really don't have any way to know. 
but he definitely is using it here in his own teaching. He's asked for the greatest commandment. He can't stop with one. He gives two. All right. And clearly, commandment number one is primary, but it has an undeniable and necessary commandment number two that goes with it. Commandment number two is not possible if you're not obeying commandment number one. You cannot love your neighbor, not biblically, not doctrinally, if you're not loving God. So he gives the greatest commandment, but he can't let it sit by itself. It has to have a second commandment. And to me, that is a message that ought to go to every doctrinal church in the country. <laughs> that you can't just have the motivating virtue towards God. You've got to have the application to your neighbor. Okay, uh, Loving God, learning the Word of God, growing in grace and knowledge, getting doctrine, getting understanding. That's awesome, but you can't stop with that. You've got to make the application. See? And so Jesus doesn't stop with the one command about loving the Lord your God. He, uh, he follows it up. He says, you've got to put the second one right there with it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the, um, he says, on these two, the entire law uh, rests or is based, has a foundation. We'll talk about that. So point A, Jesus' answer is identical to the answer provided by the lawyer as a means to work for eternal life. Let's look at that again, Luke 10. Jesus' answer is identical to the answer. Well, not technically, it's not word for word identical, but it, in content it is. Jesus' answer is identical to the answer provided by the lawyer as a means to work for eternal life. You recall, this lawyer is wrong. You can't earn salvation. Uh, but Jesus lets it go for the moment. It's a, it's a means of communication. It's a means of argumentation when you go ahead and you accept a premise for the sake of argument. And it may not be true. And you will hopefully prove at the end that it's not true at all. But you proceed forward in the discussion as if it is true, simply so that you can explore it, so that you can develop thoughts and you can bring things out. And in the idea of, of explaining who the neighbor is, when he highlights that it's this Samaritan that the, that the lawyer is going to hate like you wouldn't believe, um, the, uh, accepting the premise for the sake of argument allows him to demonstrate that the premise itself is flawed. No one can earn their way to heaven. So there's, uh, there's different issues there. But in Luke 10... Again, the question is, what can I do? Uh, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? You tell me. What does the law say? And there's 613 commandments there. What, what are you going to do to try to inherit eternal life? And so then he answers... Now, he doesn't say there's two commandments there. He just answers with a blended translation. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So you understand that's a conflation. That's, that's a combination of two verses that he just kind of blended into, into a single expression. And so the Lord's answer is very similar to that, nearly identical. 
But he's not presenting it as a means to earn eternal life. He's presenting it as the greatest commandment of the law. That's an important difference. Jesus does not teach this as a works-based salvation, but rather as a dependent foundation of what the law commands. A dependent foundation of what the law commands. Matthew 22:40. He doesn't teach it as a works-based salvation. The lawyer asked him, what is the greatest commandment of the law? So Jesus didn't say, well, do this and you'll inherit eternal life. But he did say, with these two commandments, the entire law and the prophets is based. Matthew 22:40. Again, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is actually the best of the precise, the most precise of the Deuteronomy quotations right there. Heart, soul, and, uh, well, technically not, because Deuteronomy uses might instead of mind. I'll give you all the vocabulary breakdown here shortly. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus didn't do the combine the verses into one verse thing, but he still used those same two verses. He still used Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. All right. So loving God, loving man. Uh, It's not a works-based salvation. You can't deserve eternal life by doing that. But those two things is the foundation of of the law. All right. It's a summation. A dependent foundation of what the law commands. What do we mean by dependent foundation? All right. Um, I would surmise... That, that anyone who breaks part of the law, say someone who steals, that's actually a reflection of the fact that he's not loving his neighbor and he's not loving the Lord God. Right? Any violation of the law. Someone who murders, isn't loving his neighbor, he murdered his neighbor, okay? Isn't loving the Lord God because the Lord God said, thou shalt not murder, and if you love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you're going to obey his commands. So, Really, you can use this as a dependent foundation. I don't think it's the only dependent foundation. I could also include like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think without fear of the Lord in Proverbs, you won't love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But you can, you can think of these in different ways. Uh, in the New Testament, we're told to walk in love. And you can say, well, that's a foundation for the church age walk. Because any sin you do clearly indicates that you stopped walking in love. See, as the thought process underneath it i believe you can do that with these two commands this is how the lord taught it as a dependent foundation of what the law commands but there's something else beyond that something that the scribe and luke start and mark starts to get to and the lord responded very well so you've you've answered intelligently you're actually combining other principles principles of grace principles of application and we'll see that as well when we get to uh point seven all right Join me now at Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll look at the Shema from uh, point 5. Commandment number 1 comes from the Jewish Shema. You ever heard the term Shema? Do you know what the Shema is? The Shema is the quotation that every Jewish person 
uh, of the devoutly you know, observant Jews, they cite this twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. This forms the basis. This is like their confession or their creed or their, uh, it's their uh, catchphrase. There's got to be a better way of expressing this. It, it's, what, it's what unites all Jewish people that are observant Jews. And it doesn't matter. If they're orthodox, if they're conservative, if they're liberal, if they're reformed, if they're even the even the most liberal out there um, Jewish people still cite the Shema. It's part of their culture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. Okay, and it comes from the first word of this phrase, the Shema, which is the imperative to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. I actually think the Muslims ripped this off. I believe when Muhammad wrote the Quran or when uh, the demons motivated the writing of the Quran, I believe that they ripped this off. They created a Shema for the Muslims. And they this is the beginning of their great confession that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Have you heard that before? It is the first of their... In fact, this is how you convert to Islam, is that you stand in the presence of Muslims and you recite this, uh, this, this deal. Okay? There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And of course, you have to memorize in Arabic. It only counts if you say it in Arabic. Okay? <laughs> uh, the Jews at least allow you to say it in whatever your native language is. They, they, you can say it in Hebrew. They often say it in Hebrew, but it's not a violation to say it in your native language. Muslims, though, you must cite it in Arabic. And it starts the first of all your daily prayers, of your five prayers every day. Five prayers every day, you're citing this. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Okay? Well, this is the Jewish uh, version. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now, that's a verse that was left out of the Matthew record of this, but Mark includes it in Mark 12, verse 29. He says, this is the... This is the motivation that leads into you shall love the Lord your God. You see that there? When you look at Deuteronomy 6, you have verse 4 that provides the basis for verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God. Your God. We've got to understand that. We're going to make, I mean, we, we love God as Christians. Okay, don't get me wrong. But we need to understand that the imperative, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that is actually a covenant imperative given to Israel as the God of Israel. Hear, O Israel, not church, not believers in general, not Gentile believers in the Old Testament, but Israel. Yahweh is our Elohim. He is the God of Israel. He is the Elohim of Israel. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the God of Israel. He's not the God of the Canaanites. He's not the God of the Philistines. He's not the God of the Assyrians. they got their own gods, which we've been studying in our archaeology nights last week and this week. All right? No. The Gentiles have all their phony gods. Israel has the one true God, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is our God. So hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then the imperative, you shall love the Lord your God. Direct, it's again, hear, O Israel, this is Israel's command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. 
there's no word of mind in this verse, but it gets brought into both. It gets brought into uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Who's responsible for training your children? You are. Not your pastor, not your Sunday school, not your church, not your government. You. You shall train them up. And the spiritual priority is the first part. I mean, yeah, you want to teach them to read and write. You want to teach them math and science and history and all the other secular subjects if you're homeschooling. But the first priority is to train up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And whether they become doctors or lawyers or ditch diggers or whatever they end up being, if they love Jesus Christ, then we've trained them up in that nurture and admonition of the Lord. All right. So commandment number one comes from the Jewish Shema. Hear, O Israel, this is subpoint A. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh. This is the personal name for God. He's got some 40 different names in the Old Testament, but Yahweh is his personal name, the name he revealed himself to Moses with its significance of I am. Yahweh is our Elohim. Other nations had Elohim. They typically had plural Elohim. Israel had an Elohim that they always referred to in the singular. And his name was Yahweh. Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh one, is one. And the term one there is the Hebrew echad, E-C-H-O-D, echad. And um, we'll take the time. We've got seven minutes left this morning. Um, a couple of ways you can express one in Hebrew. And this often is a verse that Jews will, Jewish people today will deny Trinity and uh, accuse Christians of being polytheists because we have three gods. Muslims will likewise tell Christians that, well, you're polytheists, you have three gods. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you try telling them, no, we have one God, he, but he's three persons in one God. And, and, uh, and we try to, be, try to speak truth, and, and they're unbelievers anyway, so how far are you going to get? But um, no, we don't have three gods, we have one God. All right? And it is significant that the, the word here is echad. This is one of, is one of a compound, a unity of a compound. And I'm very devoted. Arnold Fruchtenbaum actually has several articles on this. And I recommend it. If you have his Messianic Bible Study collection, uh, it's less than 50 in his Messianic Bible Studies. If you have his Messianic Christology, which I recommend, uh, his Messianic Christology has a good feature on this, on this uh, Shema. That uh, Echad speaks of one in the sense of a unity of a compound singularity. The man and the woman become one flesh. They're still two people. But they become one as a compound, unity of a compound singularity, rather than an absolute singularity, rather than an absolute one. You understand? If this used the other term that references an absolute one, then I would, I would agree. I would say, yes, this passage is fatal to the Trinity, to the doctrine of Trinity. Um, but this is not an absolute singularity, but a singularity of a compound. 
And uh, uh, anyway, I, I recommend that. It's, it's, it's Messianic Bible Study 50 in that collection, or it's in Messianic Christology. You can find it in two different places. So uh, our Lord is one. Yahweh is one. That is, he is unified. We think of the same thing uh, when you know, two people are united in spirit intent on one purpose. A congregation is supposed to have unity. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace we talk about. So we are one in purpose. But clearly we're still, you know, multiple people in a flock. We have, uh, you know, dozens or a hundred or however many members we have in a congregation. But we can be one collectively in a, in a unity of a compound singularity. And that's, uh, that's what this address is here. And so um, you shall love. I won't get too far with this. But the vocabulary here is pretty basic. And so it's, it's really, it's not a complicated study, but it's one that puzzles people because why, when it's quoted by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, why is it misquoted or isn't misquoted? Okay? You shall love Yahweh, your Elohim, with all your heart, soul, and might. Heart, soul, and might. Unfortunately, both the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Septuagint are are pretty uh, pretty identical here. So heart lebab, L E B A B, or L E V A V. Some prefer V's instead of B's. Lavav, number thirty-eight twenty-four. And if that's not one of the first fifty Hebrew words you ever learn, I don't know what I mean. You learn Lavav pretty early in your basic Hebrew classes. All of these are pretty basic, but Lavav is is like the cardia in Greek. In fact, cardia is the Septuagint term there. It references not the not the blood pumping organ in your chest. It represents your innermost being. It is the core of your inner man. Is your heart the core of your inner man? And I've drawn my own diagrams for you in the past. I'll draw it again next week when we break this down. But it's different from soul. It's different from spirit. All right. And uh, because unbelievers have a heart, uh, unbelievers don't have a living human spirit. Okay. But it's different than soul. Different than mind. And so uh, I prefer the term core. It's the core of your inner being. It's the absolute center of who you are. That's levav. 3824, cardia, 2588, similar concept in the Greek, uh, very almost identically used for levav in nearly every sense. Uh, it's the heart that's deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it in Jeremiah? You understand? The unbeliever's heart is a filthy, nasty place. Why would you want to invite Jesus in there? <laughs> okay. That flawed approach to evangelism. You just invite Jesus into your heart, that nasty, ugly place that's Deceitful above all else and desperately wicked, who can know it? No, you need a new heart. Create in me a clean heart. And the blessings of being washed as white as snow and having God create a clean heart within you. All right, love your God with all your lavav. Love the Lord your God with all your nephesh, all your soul. That's nephesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H, number 5315. The Greek word psuche, P-S-U-C-H-E. Again, basic vocabulary. You get this in your first Hebrew class. You get suke and your first, not your first Greek class. But once you start getting feminine nouns, so you start getting it maybe in class three or something. Um, 
with all your heart, with all your soul. So you understand heart and soul are different, at least as far as this expression is concerned. The heart and soul are linked. The poison from your heart will damage your soul, as we've studied. But then the most puzzling word of all, in the, uh, with all your might, with all your might, is the adverb ma'od, ma'od. 3966. The Septuagint uses dunamis as a power term here when the Septuagint translated Deuteronomy chapter 5, or chapter 6. But ma'od is, a, is, a, is an adverb. It means very. You might be very tall. You might be very fat. You might be very old. You might be very smart. You might be very uh, confused. Uh, but whatever you are, you're very, you're ma'od. Okay? So you're tov ma'od or you're kavod ma'od or you're katan ma'od or whatever you are. You're something ma'od, right? And this is a very unique use of ma'od substantively where it's not modifying something else as being very. It's used all by itself. So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your very. (laughs) All of your much. All of your everything. Okay? It's a fascinating use. And so when they put it in the Greek, they use dunamis for power. We'll come back to this next week um, to show you what Matthew, Mark, and Luke did with this. None of them quoted it verbatim. Uh, the addition of mind is interesting. And then the strength is never dunamis uh, in, in the Greek. So it is interesting. They use uh, iskus and some other things. So We'll talk about that next week. But loving the Lord your God with everything. All your heart. Not just half-hearted. All your soul. All your might. And uh, see, this is why it's, it's the foundation for the law. Because before you ever violate a command, you've already failed to live up to this one. You've already failed. You're not loving him with all your strength when you're considering the temptation you're looking at thinking about it, planning for it, plotting for it, and doing it. Okay, Long before you ever did it, you stopped your wholehearted love for Jesus Christ. And you started blending a half-hearted love for Jesus Christ with a, a stronger love for your own sin and your own self and your own appetites. So we'll talk about that as well. Father, thank you for your truth. We've run out of time, Father. Um, but we just thank you for the opportunity we have to assemble together. And I pray that you would... Between now and next week, or however long it takes us to finish this study, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to understand where we are uh, half-hearted, where we are not wholehearted or entirely uh, loving you, Father. And uh, highlight that for us. Show it to us. Convict us. Show us where we have idols that we've set up as competitors for our love towards you. And uh, sure, we love you, but uh, we love other things as well. And so uh, sometimes push comes to shove, and sometimes we, we, uh, well, we forsake you so we can pursue this over here. And, Father, uh, there's no place for that. Commandment number one is we shall have no other gods before you. And so uh, you are worthy of our love. Teach us how to apply this. Father, we're not your covenant people in terms of an earthly nation. This imperative wasn't given to us. Greater imperatives were given to us, Father, as the bride of Christ. We are in your Son. We are in your Beloved One. 
And we're to have love for you and love for your son in intimate ways that Israel never dreamed of. So as we study this, help us to understand clearly how we make our application and make it very clear for us, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.